AV Nation is brought to you by Atlona, the go-to provider for AV signal distribution and control in corporate, higher education, and residential spaces. Learn more at atlona.com. Our friends at SCN, every year they do the SCN Top 50. What does a list like this mean for consultants? Zero. <laughs> Sorry, it, it doesn't mean very much. I, I This list to me is like a, an award that you pay for. Mostly I think it's a bit of an ego trip for the leaders at these companies, you know, <laughs> a little bit. I think Kelly nailed it. It's the marketing version of a Maserati. Ooh. Meaning for the person who buys the car. Meaning. No, I, I'm just, Maserati's in my head now. Thank you. <laughs> and this is what I think of it. Securing AV Network's more acquisitions, and the SEN Top 50 is out. All that and more, next on AV Week. This is AV Week, episode 642, recorded Friday, December 8, 2023. AV Threat Security. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of the biggest AV stories of the week. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host with us to discuss the news and information we have got this week. First and foremost, Brent Walker from Kierkegaard. Welcome, ma'am. Hi, Tim. How are you? Thanks for having me again. I am. Good to see you. Good to see you, as always. Uh, Callie Perkins is here. Uh, she is from the farm. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you. Excited to be here. That doesn't mean that Kelly, like, runs a tractor. It's the name of it. <laughs> Explain to people what the farm is. The farm is a rep firm, and we also provide professional services like Thank programming you. and commissioning. All right. Uh, last but not least, uh, a young man who I snuck into his place of business uh, after he was gone. Fernando Mora is from the 9-11 Museum uh, in New York City. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me back and calling me a young man. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative, brother. It's it's all relative. Far from that. <laughs> uh, if you listen to last week's AV Week, I was in New York uh, at the Poly Experience Center. Thank you again to Poly for, for hosting us, Poly and HP. Uh, great time at, at Pace University again. And thanks again to the, the Bald AV guys for having me out there and talking to 200 high school students who were interested in the AV and IT industry. That was, Whoa. yeah. I know it's a week ago, guys, but it's still, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It, it was getting impressive. Uh, first story. Uh, first story comes to us from SCN. Our friends at SCN. Every year they do the SCN Top Fifty. Really quickly before I start this, a little bit of of, of um, quite clarification. Aviation is owned by CTI. CTI is not on this list because we don't uh, submit to the list. This is a self-reported list. Top Fifty. All right. So I'm, I'm not going to talk bad about anybody, but here is the thing. I understand that going in. Uh, this year's uh, top 50 list uh, ranks commercial AV installation companies by revenue. It is a mix this year. AVISPL returned to the number one slot with substantial installation revenue growth uh, and new hires. While Diversified is now also uh, the, one of the billion-dollar companies, uh, despite holding... Uh, a position pavilion gained $50 million and Washington Professional Systems increased revenue. By contrast, Level 3 uh, Audiovisual and IVCI experienced slightly lower annual revenues from installations. Rounding out the five, the top five, and actually number five is, is tied. AVI-SPL came in at $1.5 billion, diversified at $1 billion. RICO 
which we will talk about here in a second, at 465 million. ABI Systems at 428. Solotech and Solutions were the two that were tied for the fifth, came in at 260 million. Bren, start with you. Uh, Bren designs really fancy, incredible systems uh, all over the world. What does a list like this mean for consultants? Zero. <laughs> if you're not watching the video, Bren's giving a big fat zero. Zero. <laughs> Sorry, it, it doesn't mean very much. I, I This list to me is like a, an award that you pay for, right? Um, I'm, I'm happy for them. And, and, I, and I hope that it translates into, you know, bigger bonuses and, and such for the people working on their staffs. But um, for us, the problems that we have with integration still remain the problems we have with integration. I mean, I'm in Washington, D.C. right now for um, this past week, we had a VIXA board meeting. And one of my board colleagues um, who works at a inside at a, at a fairly large company, Fortune 500, you know, basically said if, you know, the when I call an integrator, they have, you know, out of however big their staff is, a third of them know what they're doing. And, and I get the third that know what they're doing because I'm a big company. So I don't think, you know, there, there's still the problem in integration with a lack of staff and a lack of qualified staff. So this is great for those companies and it's awesome. It's a great marketing piece and everything. And, and it certainly speaks to the, um, the, the overall market uh, for integration and the, the power of, our, of pro AV. But beyond that, it doesn't mean much to me. Really quickly, um, we're all going to have issues for, with staffing for a while. Um, I don't think that's going away. Go ahead, Fernando. Yeah, I'm in the exact same campus, Brandon, and I've seen this list for probably over a decade. And to me, uh, it just feels like it's it's a it's a marketing situation, something that an integrator could put on their slide deck when trying to influence. I hate to be that cynical, but to influence uh, a prospective customer or, or an existing customer to stay with them. It, it doesn't necessarily mean much, and I get the feeling they'll tell you the same thing. Um, uh, a self-paid-for award is probably as best as I, I, would, I would put it, although I would say it gives you a, a good snapshot of where our industry is. So it does have some some usefulness. Um, I appreciate the fact that there's some AV companies now in the in the billion dollar space, which is pretty impressive considering how difficult it is to uh, with low with razor thin margins and things like that that our industry faces. That that we can actually, you know, there are some companies that are kind of making that kind of money. I know that those companies are basically swallowing up smaller integrators around the country and around the world, and that's the reason, possibly for those numbers, but. Um, it is a snapshot of, of where our industry is. And a lot of, I think what it means more is just more consolidation amongst mm -hmm. uh, the big ones. Yeah. So you notice that there's some, the top two, uh, top five are in the hundreds of hundreds of millions and close to some in, in the millions, uh, billions, I should say. But most of them are in the 10, $12 million range, those mom and pops that are, that are the, the backbone of our industry. And those are the ones that really understand what it's what it's like to be. I don't want to say on the ground; it's kind of an overused term, but um, you know, understanding that you pick a particular vertical and you're good at that vertical. And if you don't, if you try to try to get too big, you may lose your shirt because you just don't, especially nowadays post COVID, have the talent 
like a small mom and pop can't do a stadium. They can't do a museum. Leave that to the diversifieds and electrosonics of the world. So they can't branch out unless they hire within or train within to do those types of projects to get to that level. And I suspect that the top guys are going to stay the top and the middle are going to stay in the middle for the most part. Yeah. Unless they self-report and say they made more money than they, sh- than they probably did or maybe pull forward projects from next year and you know do some messing around with different numbers. But generally speaking, I use it for just a snapshot of what our industry is. And that's basically the that it's a lot of more, a lot of consolidation starting in this industry at the top. One thing I would say to counter that, at least in our world, we hardly ever work with the big guys because it's just a, it's just a mixed bag of what you might get in terms of that office, right? Yeah. Depends on the office. Cause it depends on the office. And, and if that office and that market is not, is not competitive with another local that knows how to do an auditorium well, or knows how to do a recording studio well, they're not going to get it right. And and we've you know become more educated about which of the large company offices have the right talent to do the work for the projects that we have, and they have to be there. This is not a situation where you can have you you can only have so much of the team not actually in the geographical region where the project is. And I've seen enough situations where people try to have the programmers in Arizona, but the project is in Tennessee and it's a nightmare because, you know, the increase of software codec in the, in the system means that programmer actually needs to be there. That's absolutely true. I worked for one of those integrators for decades and what typically would happen is depending on the project, you have that one core office for, I would say, for example, uh, SPL before the merger, the guys out of Columbia, Maryland, were the ones that did all the big jobs. Well, the guys that would travel, our New York office was pretty adept at these some of these things, but the big projects typically are handled by the core group of, of the head engineers of the those large organizations. So if you're going to do a stadium, it's going to most likely the guys are going to come out of the at a headquarters, Kenilworth for Diversified in, in um, Tampa out of for, for Electrosonic or even ABI, SPL. So it's typically those guys are the, the workhorses of industries and they do all the large projects. But the smaller stuff that the regional offices do um, can get a little muddled um, by by the small, I mean, under 500,000, under a million, those are probably handled by the local branch, but uh, the bigger projects, the higher profile projects are m- most likely done by their top teams. All right, Kelly, let's get your two cents on this. Um, Kelly's been around the industry for a minute. Uh, she's not only worked for an integrator, but also for a manufacturer. So what, what does this list mean? I would agree with Fernando on the, it gives you a snapshot of where kind of our industry sits and who's kind of moving, who's acquiring, who's merging, who's kind of gone away. Um, I would also agree that it's marketing fluff to an extent because there is no evidence or proof of how much these companies have made or projected or how many employees they have. Um, but mostly I think it's a bit of an ego trip for the leaders at these companies, you know, (laughs) a little bit, um, you know, I think they get to say, well, I'm the biggest and the best and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, you know, but ultimately, you know, it is a snapshot. And I think it's it's also, you know, an interesting marketing tool for manufacturers, distributors, and those folks in our industry, because now they have a list of who the big people are and who they need to go after. And, you know, pipelines, you know, 
shift and, and plans change based a little bit on this list too. So it's, it's giving you a little insight into kind of who are the up and comers, who people need to focus on. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that on the manufacturing side too. I think Kelly nailed it. It's the marketing version of a Maserati. Ooh. If you base, base meaning for the person who buys the car. Meaning, no, I, I'm just Maserati's in my head now. Thank you. <laughs> it shows something. Maybe it makes up for something else you don't feel so confident about to be able to say, "Yeah, we were in the top fifty. We were number two. We were number one." Uh, next, <laughs> I'm not going to touch that with a fifty foot pole. <laughs> next, hi, this is Jennifer Goodyear and Erica Carroll from, from the, the Women, Women in, in AV, AV podcast, podcast, where we are encouraged by the incredible stories of women in AV. Listen in on fun, empowering conversations as we chat with inspiring women, breaking barriers and creating their own path in the industry. Check out Women in AV on avnation.tv or wherever you get your podcasts. Before it comes to us. Um, from uh, actually darn near anybody, go ahead and look it up. I believe it's even on our website. Audio equipment manufacturer Rode has acquired Mackie from Loud Audio, uh, further expanding Rode's pro audio range. Uh, founded in 1989, Mackie is known for its affordable audio mixers and speakers for recording studios, home use, and live sound reinforcement. Deal establishes Rode's parent company, the Friedman Group, as a leading global pro audio brand, combining Mackie's expertise in mixing consoles and live sound with Rode's microphones and recording equipment. Rode founder Peter Friedman said, quote, unquote, Mackie's pedigree of live sound expertise is simply unmatched, and the acquisition creates a premier audio technology company. Fernando, we'll start with you on this. A little bit like last story, it, it's a bit of a snapshot in the industry, 100% acquisition. What does this mean to higher ed users? What does this mean to corporate AV users that either leverage Mackie and or Rode or both? Well, um, what I would say, I first off start off with the fact that Mackie is one of those companies that is kind of a little bit of a beloved brand uh, between those of us that have been in the industry for a long time. We all started off as either failed musicians or failed DJs or something along those lines in the AV industry. So everyone owned the Mackie um, back back in the days. And they, they were good mixers for small spaces, um, but along comes this company road and i think for the most part it's because of the creator economy and i'm going to ask you a question in a minute but the creator economy basically was is what they it's being used for so those two companies together seem to be a good fit for you know this post-covid world and podcasts and, and, and youtubers and all this other stuff and everyone everybody wants to be a, the, the new marcus brownlee and things like that but that's not my vertical in terms of schools. I would only I would only add the fact that I realize that those you know schools in, in churches and things like that are places with limited budgets, so they can they can better afford these these lower price devices as opposed to you know the big guys like Sennheiser and Yamaha and things like that. So that seems to be a better fit for that and quite honestly for what they typically would do um they're not doing large productions they're not doing you know things that will require you know very expensive professional equipment this to me would kind of live in the prosumer world um and that is to me just mm -hmm. as good for what they're doing not, i'm not saying that some churches can do pretty large productions go to texas and you can see that but um, and some schools might, but for the most part, most schools are not doing large scale productions. Most churches are pretty, um, 
small with their budgets. They're doing modest production. So this lives right in their world, right in their space. So that seems to be a good fit. All right. Kelly, same question. What does this, what does this mean to the industry and what does this mean for their users? Well, I had to look up who actually owned Mackie before. <laughs> Cause it's like, I know it's one of those big companies. I'm not sure. Um, you know, and I, I, I don't, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I'm not super familiar with Mackie. Um, I'm not a hardcore audio person. I bought a Rode microphone years ago to do, to bring with me to do case studies and interviews on the road. Um, oh, see, I did a little pun there. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, but I mean, if, if you want to me, Rode seems like, like you said, Fernando, it seems like, you know, portable. It seems like podcasting. It seems more like somebody like myself would use it, uh, in a marketing role. Um, and if Mackie is more in that realm, then I think it's probably a good fit. Uh, I, I agree with Fernando on the prosumer side. I think that that one quote that you read, I mean, Mackie used to mean something uh, a, a long time ago in terms of live sound, but I can't remember. I, I can't remember the last time we specified one. Uh, and road gear, we don't deal with at all. So, um, I mean, it's glad to see the brand um, around and surviving and, you know, hopefully this merger, um, gives them some, you know, juice to, to get back to the position that they describe, but I don't think the position they describe is the reality anymore. You know, if, if, if I were, if I were advising someone who is doing their own podcast setup, you know, and they want or, or they're, they're, they plan to do multi-track recording, recording beyond like four tracks, you know, Mackie or Behringer or one of those would work for them fine. Um, but, uh, but honestly, Behringer is bad as the, well, did I say that? Sorry, I shouldn't say things like that. Cost effective. Cost effective. Cost right. effective, right. As cost effective as the Behringer consoles are, um, there is some, there's weakness there and there's an opportunity for Mackie to gain part of that back if they, if their new owner um, puts the dollars behind it and make sure that they, that it remains, that they remain reliable gear. Cause that's the, the main issue with that price point is the reliability after a couple of years. There's room in that space for them right now, especially with, with mm -hmm. uh, the creator economy exploding the way it has been since COVID. Um, there's a lot of, it's a decent group of people that want to work from home and want to have the freedom of uh you know inviting a few people over throw a few mics out throw up a mic uh throw up a camera and then let's have a conversation similar to what we're doing right now this is prevalent throughout this entire space so yeah one thing i will say is that i think it, at least on the studio side um there's a lot of chat there's a loss of available market on the studio side because at least in what i see in higher ed smaller schools um high schools they're not they're not putting in any physical mixer at all, right? They're doing everything out of the box of the computer and uh, everything is digital faders. So in those, some of those smaller applications where people are not opting for uh, a physical surf mix surface, uh, that, that has shrunk that part of the market considerably, so. Yeah, using Pro Tools. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, it's absolutely nope. nothing wrong with that. Says the old Pro Tools kit, so. Uh <laughs> Last story comes to us from our friends over at Innovate Across the Prom. The convergence of AV and IT 
has introduced new cybersecurity threats as more devices connect to external network networks, enabling remote access. Integrators report an increase in sophisticated attacks like ransomware directly targeting vulnerabilities in AV systems. With hybrid working, widespread manufacturers and integrators alike are prioritizing security in product design and engaging clients on best practices. Expert call Experts call for greater collaboration across the industry to stay ahead of threats through education, setting standards, and sharing intelligence on the ever-evolving threat landscape. couple pieces here before I start with you, Kelly. Number one, state of California here in the States, they have set up uh, a piece of legislation that says if your device has a password, the second you open it up, you have to change the password. Now, Crestron, Extron, Sennheiser, whoever, they're not going to make a California-specific device, meaning that if you're in the States, you're going to have to change your password. That, to me, is the lowest fruit that we can do in the industry, right? Now, 10 years ago, you could have password, password as your password, whatever. Now you have to change the, the default password on any device that touches the network and if it has a password. Beyond that, Kelly, how do we do that? Like, how do we educate the industry? How do we tell manufacturers, distributors, and the users of this equipment that this is a real threat? Um, there's an interview I did probably 10 years ago now, and uh, I was having a conversation with a CTO of a major manufacturer. I'm not going to say who, but the comment to, that came back to me when we started talking about security is, what's the worst thing they're going to do? Hack the projector. And it was incredibly short-sighted even 10 years ago. Now, the industry has matured since then. Don't misunderstand. And, and that company has, has put actual honest-to-God security in place. But there are still some remnants of that mentality left in the industry of, oh, what's the worst thing they're going to do? They're going to lower and, and, and raise the screen. Who cares? No, no. It's a real issue. So how do we get that education out there? How do we communicate that to everybody in the chain? Well, I think, I mean just as an organization putting together a plan, right? Maybe it's hiring a consultant or a firm or someone. I mean, we've all sat through those, those videos of, you know, don't wire your down payment on your house to, <laughs> you know, this person or whatever, you know, so, or don't send gift cards <laughs> to, to the text message I got this morning from so-and-so and then wipe off the thing, which just happened in our organization, by the way. So it's okay. still happening. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think just educating, putting together a plan in your organization. I think the manufacturers should take it very seriously. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I've talked to at least three or four very large manufacturers in our industry that got hacked within the last few years that are now doing, you know, have very stringent plans and um, guidelines in place. So I think, I think mainly just educating your employees, educating the channel, like you said, on specific steps and plans um, of how to handle that. Because I think people just, you know, you don't know what you don't know. All right, Bren, how do, how do we get this out there? How do we can, how do we communicate the seriousness of this? I'll say this, that I think it's impossible, not impossible, but it's a challenge to get people to understand the security threat until it happens to them, right? Okay. Once it, once it happens to them, then, then they invest in the organization to make sure that they have the right 
protocols in place and that their staff is appropriately trained. Until it happens, a lot of firms just aren't going to make that investment. A lot of companies just aren't going to make that investment. But what I will say about this, and there was one line in the article that, that spoke directly to this issue, there's no reason why an AV network should be on an enterprise network. AV devices should not be on the enterprise network. And if it's, it's a matter of how you design the system and that making sure that if you're dealing with an entity that does not have a, a, a robust IT department that can speak to the way the AV network should connect with their enterprise network, then the designer needs to and the consultant needs to inform them and educate them and help them see how everything needs to be structured. I mean, all of our projects that we design, it's separate AV network. And then usually we'll have, uh, there may be a device that has two NICs in it so that it can connect to the internet or it may have some connection to the enterprise. But most of the devices on that ne network, if you hack to them, you can't get anywhere else except to the other AV devices. So that's, that to me is is goes beyond the password thing. That's the other way to to stop AV from being a point of vulnerability is in your network design. And and I'll also add that we are now, you know, I would say within the last year or so, we've started as a part of our design. We are doing a a, a network riser diagram, and we are talking oh, wow. and we're showing our client. Here's what this network is going to look like. And here's the points where it is going to have any sort of intersection with yours. And then let's talk about, you know, what the protocols are if there is some, some kind of attack on the AV system. But that's something that our firm, we've never needed to do before. But we do it now and we're talking with IT now before we ship our final construction documents. So it's in the documents and, and that helps that helps with the build out of the system. And frankly, it helps integrators because integrators may or may not have that level of knowledge to understand how things should be set up. Um, so overall, I think it's it's all about how you plan it and design it and and and, you know, communicating it. We're just gonna we're gonna go through what we go through in terms of more people experiencing it, and some wise leaders will use their budgets appropriately and protect themselves, and others will roll the dice, especially if they are, you know, as Fernando mentioned before, have lean margins. So, all right, Fernando, you'll have the last word on this. How do we get this out there? I think um, I agree with, with a lot of what Brent said. It's just a change of mindset. Um, there are some of us that have been in, in the in the industry for a long time and just never really had to to really think about internet security as has to do with our devices where now we obviously have to do so there there's a skill set that us old guys have to acquire and and take seriously i would say the av industry takes takes it very seriously i think there's there might be just a term there might be a gap in terms of knowledge 
of um, what would that happen for us, for example, 9-11 Museum, uh, our experience is very audiovisual centric. It's, it's very, it's based around the audiovisual experience. So if our systems get hacked, then we're basically refunding tickets. So for us, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, an attack on the enterprise network. An attack on the AV network would be catastrophic enough for us if there's some sort of ransomware would, that, that would, you know, obviously, we're somewhat of a high profile venue, so it would it would literally be on the news the next day. So for us, we're and I'm not gonna discuss what steps we take other than hiring consultants is one of the things. What you don't know is what you don't know. So you hire the best. You hire people to do pen tests for you. Um you know, you hire you hire people to, to do these things. Um you institute two factor authentication for everything. Whatever you need to do, um you have your phone with you for the most part and you authenticate on your phone and, and on the on the computer and you isolate your AV network from the enterprise network. Everybody knows step one, AV network. You should never have any AV devices on that network. And if you have, uh, you know, IT director worth half his chops, that's the first thing he's gonna do. And any engineer would, first thing you do, Isolation, complete, iso not complete. You're gonna have to talk to it from the enterprise network, but you, you, um, you know, you put these things in places where it, it's very difficult to get from one network to the other. Not that these cyber criminals can't do that because they're they're just as talented as anyone else out there. These these um these things are these cyber criminals. That's an industry now. It's um they're an industry with actual tech support. Believe it or not. If they, if you have a scenario where you they they have all they encrypted all your data, and um and you don't know how to decrypt the data or you don't know anything about Bitcoin, they will actually help you out with that. Believe it or not, uh, I've read articles about that. So, you know, we're not talking about we're talking some serious some people with some pretty serious chops and how to get around. Our systems are a little different. If, if they're very AV centric, um, they don't necessarily. Uh, you know, play well with with uh, with what they might know, but it's still a very serious situation that we need to take uh, take very seriously. And uh, and I do. And and but the mindset of the industry might not be that. One of the things that I was surprised about from that story is the the notion that uh, hybrid work dro is driving this. Um, so many organizations already had remote workers or people who would work from outside of the office, right? So it it sort of suggests that if if they were if they didn't have security issues with their remote workers before, it sort of makes you think that this is an end user issue for the people who are now working remotely who weren't before. And that, and that those people, and we know that a lot of security vulnerability is is comes to the human being at the machine, right? Yep. It's going to always be, always. So addressing, properly educating people who are working remotely who weren't working remotely before, would go a long way to to preventing some things. However, like Fernando said, you know, if somebody is if their job is to figure out the attack. You, you're, and your job isn't necessarily to figure out the attack, but to stop attacks. Your, your effort to stop is going to be based on a known universe of things that you've seen before. And the attacker is trying to do something you've never seen before. And yep. they're very focused on that. 
So it's it in many ways it's it has to be a, a a part of business that we just ongoing accept the same way retailers accept that they're going to have a certain amount of shoplifting. So what are your systems to prevent that? Thank God. I tell my I tell my mom all the time. I'm like I'm like if it's if it looks weird, it's weird. It's not right. Don't download it. Don't click it. There are various steps you can do. Look at the URL. Look at it and does it look right? Does is does this does the URL go back to facebook.com or does it go back to something that's completely, you know, ridiculous mm -hmm. that, you know, face at facebook.org. You know, that's obviously those are the one of the first things that you need to look at. All right, y'all. Uh, thank you so much. Um, Bren Walker from Kierkegaard. Thank you, ma'am. How do people connect with you or Kierkegaard? At Kierkegaard.com. And you can get me, my email is Bren at Kierkegaard.com. And I am um, sporadically on LinkedIn, uh, Brenda J. Walker. The uh, testing for the um, AV Network Professional Credential will open up on December 15th. And you should go get that. I know a couple of guys that are already signed up for it. So, all right, very good. Kelly Perkins, thank you, ma'am. How do people connect with you? with the farm or with save uh, the farm is the farm av.com uh, you can find me at on linkedin kelly p perkins and save sustainability and av is saveav.org all right very good mr fernando thank you sir uh how do people connect with you linkedin i don't i don't do the x's or the twitters or anything like that linkedin <laughs> all right very good I don't uh, for you. us for uh, don't follow me on any of it because uh, i'm still complaining about the bears season um, go to the website, Avian. I know, Brand. Don't talk. Your 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 Browns are doing better than the Bears. Um, we have hope. Forget have about hope. the Giants. You have hope, which sometimes is worse. Just Avianation dot TV. That's Avianation TV. Couple really cool things this month already. Number one, our annual Avianation Readers Choice Awards. The nomination process is up and rolling. So go by the website. And tell us what the best things ha that happened in the AV industry was, whether it's the best education or the best projector or who you think should be the AV Nation uh, AV professional of the year. So that's one thing. Second, if you're headed to ISE, which I know Bren is, uh, so we get to hang out a bit. The AV to and, and Kelly, um, the AV tweet up is uh, happening at the HD base T stand on and in conjunction with us and commercial integrator and their 40 under 40. So that is Tuesday, uh, the 30th of January from 4 to 6 p.m. Barcelona time, CET, I think is what it's called. So register for both of those at avnation.tv. It's avnation.tv. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. That's all the time we have for AV. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation.